What's up, guys? Welcome back to Chronic Failure Podcast. This is your host, Brian Bostock, and this is episode number five. Before we get to this week's topic, I have a few announcements. I would like to thank those that have reached out to me via email and comment. I appreciate all the feedback I've been receiving about the podcast. So far, it looks like we have a pretty good interest as far as downloads go, so that's good. A lot of listeners in the U.S. and surprisingly quite a few abroad as well, so I'm pretty excited about that. I just want to remind everyone that if you have comments, questions, or concerns, those can be sent to the Chronic Failure Podcast at gmail.com, or you can DM me on Instagram over there. It's the Chronic Failure Podcast. Uh, we also post our episode photos um, on that Instagram account, uh, so you can kind of see some of the things that we're talking about in the episodes. I've also decided that the first week of every month I'm going to have more of a current events sort of episode. Um, So that'll start the first week in March. I haven't quite decided if I want to drop, you know, the normal episode plus a current events or just a current events. Most likely it'll just be a current events episode, especially this first month because there's actually been some events occurring around the world you know we've got the earthquake in turkey and syria we've got the train wreck in ohio i'll mention it the next podcast and then uh, i believe after that that'll be the um, first week of march so you'll have that to look forward to with that being said Thank you all for listening. Let's go ahead and hop in to this week's episode on the Fukushima disaster. More than 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased five-fold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are under threat from toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. Because there are these dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. At 2.46 p.m. on March 11th, 2011, time seemed to completely stop for those in the Fukushima prefecture. This was at the moment that the Tohoku earthquake, sometimes called the Great East Japan earthquake, with a magnitude of 9.1 rocked the coastal region. This was the biggest earthquake to ever hit Japan and the fourth largest earthquake since modern record keeping began in the 1900s. This was an underwater earthquake causing a mega thrust with the epicenter in the Pacific Ocean. And this was about 45 miles off the Japanese mainland, and it lasted all but six minutes. It actually reverberated through northeastern Honshu, Japan's biggest island. A little less than an hour later, an ensuing barrage of tsunami waves hit the mainland with blind fury. Some of these tsunami waves were up to 133 feet in height. Now records indicate that these waves were traveling up to 435 miles per hour. 
and the water reached up to six miles inland. While numbers vary slightly, the tsunami's indiscriminating waves claimed the lives of at least 15,000 people, and most of these people were the elderly. And some estimates actually bring this number up to 20,000, but there seems to be a lot of variation in the data. Now let's break this down a little bit more. Over 2,000 people are still missing to this day, over 6,000 people were injured, and over 100,000 people were evacuated from the initial area. Now the earthquake would end up heavily destroying infrastructure, buildings, roads, and railways. The earthquake was actually so powerful that it moved the entire coastline eight feet to the east and sank it about three feet downward. As if to add insult to injury, this, this already devastating event was only the beginning. Now this earthquake and the ensuing tsunami also damaged the reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi power plant and resulted in one of the worst nuclear disasters in the world to this day. Several of the plant's reactor buildings actually ended up blowing up and caused radioactive elements to be released into the air. As a response to this, the government ordered the people of Fukushima to evacuate the area out to 20 kilometers now, while this series of events was unfortunate, the nuclear disaster part of this whole issue could have been prevented. This story encompasses many things, but this episode's focus is going to be on energy. We're going to look at how nuclear energy has been championed, some would argue to a fault, within Japan, it's also about the chaotic and powerful energy of Earth's systems as a whole as it relates to earthquakes and tsunamis. It's also about the invisible spectrum of radiation and its lingering stigma, personal energy and how the human body reacts to stress, and finally about the residual energy left behind of those taken too soon. This is the haunting story of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear energy disaster. As mentioned earlier, the Fukushima nuclear disaster is more like the culmination of three separate disasters in one. The event resulted in the worst single loss of life in Japan since the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the 1940s. It is, however, important to distinguish the two. They're often spoken of in the same breath due to both being nuclear disasters of one type or another, but the Fukushima disaster differs from the bombings as it was a peaceful energy source that was triggered, ultimately leading to death and destruction. A tragic facet of Fukushima, unfortunately, was the fact that it was avoidable. As I alluded to in the beginning, the earthquake was qualified as an undersea megathrust. Its epicenter was located about 72 kilometers off the peninsula of Oshika, which projects southeast off the coast of Honshu. Now, according to the United States Geological Society, 
megathrust earthquakes are giant earthquakes that occur on megathrust faults. And these are the stuck portions of the interface between two converging tectonic plates. And the area where these stuck portions are, are called subduction zones. Now at this subduction zone, the Pacific plate is actually subducting underneath the plate in which Honshu sits atop of. Now I did also mention that this episode deals with the topic of energy in many forms. The megathrust earthquake was the result of tension built up between the subduction plates for over potentially thousands of years. The energy released by this earthquake during that six minutes was 1.9 quadrillion joules, which sounds like a lot, and that is because it is. Dr. Marsha McNutt, director of the U.S. Geological Survey, actually stated in a CBS segment at the time that if we could harness that energy released by the earthquake, we could power the city of Los Angeles for an entire year. According to a study undertaken by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, or NOAA, the amount of energy released by the ensuing tsunamis amounted to about 3 petajoules. Now, I can almost guarantee this is an unfamiliar value to the layperson, but a statement by NOAA might help compute this information. That value is actually enough to power New York City for seven days or the entire country of Canada for about two and a half hours. So these are incredibly large amounts of energy. So it turns out the combined events of the giant earthquake and the forceful wall of water charging the coastline in its wake are the kind of event that one could categorize as unpredictable. Now, who could have thought the Fukushima plant would have to endure both a earthquake and large tsunami waves crashing into it? I guess it sort of leaves the question, was an event like this planned for in the nuclear plants designed? Before we take a look at that, let's kind of hop back and take a look at the importance of nuclear energy for the Japanese government and the sort of safety myth that created a false sense of security and led to the rise of TEPCO's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. After World War II, the nuclear power opened up a completely new avenue in terms of energy production. Japan, being an island, didn't necessarily have its own resources like oil and gas that they could rely on. And so when nuclear power stepped in, it became a new option, and it would be one that would allow the country to not have to rely on other foreign countries for its energy. Around 1954, Japan had budgeted about 230 million yen in order to move forward with its plans in the development of nuclear energy. Now, converted to today's money, that's about 1.4 billion yen and about 10 million U.S. dollars. Japan eventually began construction of nuclear plants at a faster rate than any other nation in the world. 
again, to them, nuclear energy was total independence from other countries for energy. In a 2021 BBC documentary, associate professor Katsui Hirano of UCLA explains the creation of the safety myth in the context of nuclear power. This is what she had to say. The Japanese government, energy companies, and also major media outlets work together to create the safety myth, which is the idea that nuclear energy does not bring any harm to the people. They only emphasize the positive effects while neglecting or almost consciously ignoring the risks and harms that come with it. Now, this is an important sentiment. As it pervades through this whole story, the idea that nuclear energy, or the business of it at least, had to be uplifted at all costs. Later on in 1967, Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, built its nuclear power plants in Fukushima Prefecture. The Daiichi plant, commissioned in 1971, was one of the 25 largest operational nuclear power plants in the entire world. This power plant contained six General Electric light water boiling reactors. The plant was GE designed, as in TEPCO bought designs from GE, and it was the first one entirely ran by TEPCO. Like I said, the plant's design was imported from the United States in what is called a turnkey contract, and this is significant. An independent report by Greenpeace titled Fukushima Fallout, published in 2013, had this to say about it. The report says TEPCO chose GE not just because the company's technical achievements, but also because it would be cheaper to adopt this design, which was actually also being commissioned in Spain, it would actually end up that Unit 1 would be built before the unit in Spain. Instead of having the Spanish experience available to draw on, the Fukushima plant became the first facility to experience numerous difficulties. Now, the report continues, the seismic design criteria in Japan were stricter than for the original design. But incorporation of the Japanese specifications was problematic and ad hoc reinforcements were made during construction. So at the end of the day, this means that GE's plant design was not really tailored to the situation of Fukushima and the implementation of changes during the design process were met with reticence. In a BBC interview in 2021, Professor Tatsujori Suzuki of Nagasaki University had explained that it was designed, explained that the reactor was designed by a manufacturer with a lack of basic know-how when it comes to nuclear power plant design. And the professor went on to give some examples to support their argument. One example is the A. The emergency power sources, which were backup diesel generators, were stored underground in this design, and this made the generators highly susceptible to flooding. And the idea was that this would protect them from a hurricane rather than a tsunami. 
The second major example that they gave to support their argument was the containment areas within the reactor buildings were actually not watertight. Like the majority of nuclear facilities, safety is purportedly the most important thing. Supposedly, Fukushima Daiichi was designed to withstand a 10,000-year event. Now, these events include large earthquakes, floods, and hurricanes. And it can be inferred that any combination of these events was written out of the realm of possibility. Now, when they design these based on these events, which a 1 in 10,000 year event means that according to the past, kind of placing that against the future, one of these events would really only happen maybe once in every 10,000 years. And if there is no history of multiple events or multiple contributing disasters in one of these events having ever happened previously, it just wasn't built into the design. And is this GE's fault? Not necessarily, because you only have so much that you can expect to happen based on history. And you know, a 1 in 10,000 year event, that is a long stretch of time. And you would assume, maybe ignorantly, that in 10,000 years, that nuclear plant wouldn't even be there. But I digress. It has since been reported that in 2008, during a meeting of the G8's Nuclear Safety and Security Group in Tokyo, an International Atomic Energy Agency expert actually expressed concern that the Japanese reactors were only designed to withstand a magnitude 7 earthquake. Now to Japan, this was of great concern because as of that time, actually experienced three earthquakes that were a magnitude of eight or greater. Now aside from the earthquakes, there are actually many examples of tsunami studies that were forwarded to TEPCO, stating in more ways than one that the likelihood that waves much taller than the ones projected to withstand the seawall within the design could upend the plant at any time. Unfortunately, all of these warnings were either deflected or ignored. And it would actually turn out later on in a TEPCO report following the 2011 tsunami, a very pugnant comment was made on the subject of not heeding prior warnings. And this report also states that announcing information about uncertain risks would create anxiety. So they ignored and deflected warnings of potential crisis or potential breakdown of this nuclear energy plant design because they didn't want to rile people up. And this is very emblematic of the complex nature of the Fukushima Daiichi disaster, as it shows how many different facets conspired to make this avoidable disaster actually come to fruition. Now between 
the earthquake design warnings and the tsunami design warning, TEPCO had been consistently warned that this plant lacked structural integrity. But ultimately, it chose greed and quote-unquote saving the public from anxiety over safety of society. Professor Katsuya Hirano actually elaborated on this, saying, quote, TEPCO planned to address the structural problems, but they came to the conclusion that it was going to cost a lot more money, and they may even have to shut the plant down completely. In the end, they put higher priority in continuing operations over making those changes that would make the plant resilient to natural events such as tsunamis and earthquakes. Although it wasn't the right choice, it does sort of make sense because at this time the Japanese government was overly invested in maintaining the dominance of nuclear energy. And because its own nuclear regulation body lacked independence from the government, there was essentially no oversight. As I've already mentioned, the plant was not structurally designed to thwart waves the size of which were seen on March 11th. However, they were also, however, they were also not equipped to deal with even the largest waves on record at the time in Japan either. According to the article, According to the article by James M. Acton for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the Fukushima accident was completely preventable. He alleges that TEPCO and the Japanese regulatory body NISA, or NISA, which stands for Nuclear and Industrial Safety Agency, did not follow international best practices and safety standards at the time. He noted three key areas when it comes to tsunamis. One, insufficient attention was paid to evidence of large tsunamis inundating the region surrounding the plant about once every thousand years. Two, NISA failed to review simulations conducted by TEPCO and to foster the development of appropriate computer modeling tools. Third, while computer modeling of the tsunami threat was inadequate, some preliminary simulations conducted in 2008 actually suggested that the tsunami risk to the plant had been seriously underestimated. And these Preliminary simulations were never followed up on and were actually only reported to NISA on March 7th of 2011. Now when it comes to this third key area, it is the most significant because the energy plant is situated right on the coast and it's entirely protected by a tsunami barrier seawall. And that seawall was only designed to withstand waves reaching about five and a half meters tall. Now keep this five and a half meters in your mind because on March 11th, merely six days after the computer models were finally reported, 
And less than an hour after the earthquake, the first tsunami wave actually crested at that four to five meters, which right there is getting very close to topping that seawall. Unfortunately, as we know, the second wave had actually ran up to about 14 to 15 meters. And of course, this overwhelmed the seawall and inundated the entire site. Now, although the earthquake was the main setter of these events, it had really only knocked out main power to the site up until this time. And the backup generators were doing their jobs. Unfortunately, it was the overwhelming of the seawall by the tsunami waves that really set the disaster in motion. Now, the effects of the Tohoku earthquake, coupled with its ensuing tsunami, spearheaded a chain reaction of the Fukushima Daiichi plant that created a severe nuclear accident and caused the release of radioactive material. This release was actually in the form of radionuclides. Radionuclides are an unstable chemical element that releases radiation as it breaks down and stabilizes. So radionuclides were released from the plant and deposited onto the land and the ocean surrounding the plant. Let's actually take a step back here quick and break down what actually happened. On that faded day, Units 1, 2, and 3 were actually in operation as normal. Fortunately, Units 4, 5, and 6 were not operating at the time due to routine maintenance, refueling, and inspection. Right around 2.46 p.m. is when the earthquake struck. Upon detecting high seismic acceleration, the units were automatically shut down and cooling was sort of forced upon the cores. And this was in units one, two, and three, of course, with the goal of not stopping but more slowing the nuclear reactions happening within the cores. After shutdown, the nuclear fuel continues to generate heat, so that cooling has to continue to happen. And this is because of decay heat, the heat released as the result of radioactive decay. And so the energy of alpha, beta, and gamma radiation is actually converted into the thermal movement of atoms, and that's where this heat is coming from. To prevent the nuclear fuel from overheating, the heat must be removed, and this is done using cooling systems that are controlled and maintained by the electrical grid system there on site. Unfortunately, the earthquake caused sort of a worst-case scenario in which there was a total loss of power for every unit at the plant. And this is called a loop event. It was factored into the design parameters of the plant. And this is where the backup generators, remember those were put in the basement of the reactor buildings, they would fire up, keeping these cooling systems running, thus 
reducing the risk of a nuclear meltdown. Because of these backup diesel generators, power resumed as normal once they were triggered. And it's right around this time where the design parameters for the plant really start to fail. This is when the tsunami sort of takes over in this disaster. As mentioned earlier, the tsunami barrier seawall successfully protected against the first wave, but the second wave was far too large for the wall to do any good. According to the comprehensive technical report by the IAEA published in 2015, these are the series of events that followed that second wave hitting. First, the wave flooded and damaged the unhoused seawater pump and motors of all six units at the seawater intake location on the shoreline. And this essentially meant that the plant systems and components, including those water-cooled emergency diesel generators, could not be cooled to ensure their continuous operation. Now on top of that, water also flooded into all of the buildings. This would be the reactor and turbine buildings, the common spent fuel storage buildings, and the diesel generator buildings. It actually damaged the buildings and the electrical and mechanical equipment inside at ground level and on the lo lower levels were completely flooded out. The damaged equipment included the emergency diesel generators or their associated power connections, the power distribution panels, and the switchgear equipment which resulted in the loss of the emergency AC power. Only one of the air-cooled electrical diesel generators, which was in Unit 6, was unaffected by the flooding, and it remained in operation, continuing to supply emergency AC power to the Unit 6 safety systems and allowed cooling of the reactor. Now remember, the electrical power from these is used to move water all around the plant and cool down the reactor. And yes, Unit 6 was shut down, but you have to remember that because of heat from decay, cooling still needs to be done on shutdown reactors. As a result of the flooding and destruction of the electrical systems, Units 1 through 5 lost all power, and this is an event that is actually referred to as Station Blackout, or SBO. And as per the Nuclear Emergency Act, all relevant off-site agencies were informed of the SBO at Fukushima within five minutes of the loss of that AC power. So as of now, we can sort of see how the designs of this nuclear facility were sort of lacking in regards to the water issues. But fortunately, in the event of an SBO situation, plants like this one are equipped with further emergency on-site DC electrical sources. Unfortunately, the flooding affected this equipment in units 1, 2, and 4. So because of this flooding, the DC power was lost to units 1, 2, and 3 during the first 10 to 15 minutes of the SBO. Going back to preparedness, 
in the absence of procedures addressing the loss of all power, both AC and DC, the operators of units 1, 2, and 4 did not have specific instructions on how to deal with an SBO under these conditions. Fortunately, units 3 and 5 were actually operating under DC power, and like I stated earlier, unit 6 kept operating under AC power provided by the one functional diesel generator still running. Because of the total loss of electrical power in units 1 and 2, there were no indications available to the operators on the status of key systems and components to determine whether the safety systems were actually operating properly or operating at all. So as I said, the site lost reactor monitoring and control and cooling functions in those units affected by the water. That would be one, two, three, and four. At this point, the compromised cooling led to a shift in strategy. So water needed to be injected directly into the reactors in order to prevent or to mitigate damage to the nuclear fuel. By 6 p.m. on the 11th, water levels in Unit 1 were dropping and actually reached the top of the fuel, and because of this, the core temperature began to climb. The fuel in Unit 1 became fully exposed merely an hour and a half later, and because it was fully exposed and there was no cooling, the fuel damage in the central core had started. It was right around 9 p.m. that the first evacuation orders were issued by the government, which affected people within a three-kilometer radius of the energy plant. Despite the risk of hydrogen colliding with oxygen, the decision is made to relieve some of the pressures that were building up in Unit 1 by releasing some of the steam that had accumulated in the containment. Now remember, this steam not only contained a large amount of hydrogen, but it also contained radioactive material. Now the same decision is actually made in the case of Unit 2 as well, and it also releases hydrogen and radioactive vapor. At 3.30 p.m. on the 12th, evacuation orders are actually extended to a 10-kilometer radius from the plant. And right around that same time is when the first massive hydrogen explosion actually occurs within Unit 1. And so the primary containment was not damaged in this explosion, but the secondary containment is damaged, and this is actually the reactor building. Now jumping ahead to 7 p.m. on that same day, remember we're still on the 12th, this is when seawater injection into Unit 1 begins. So TEPCO orders this procedure to be halted about 7.30 p.m. because of fear of further corrosion and hydrogen buildup potentially leading to another explosion. But, of course... This wasn't going to happen. The plant boss, Masao Yoshida, actually ignored this request. 
After this, about 9.40 p.m., for a third time, the evacuation order is actually extended again. And this time, it's extended to a 20-kilometer radius. And this would ultimately be the final evacuation order. In the end, the loss of the cooling capacity for these reactors led to three core meltdowns, three hydrogen explosions, and the release of radioactive contamination in Units 1, 2, and 3 at the plant between the 12th and the 15th of March. Often when we talk about environmental disasters, there is an onslaught of ailments resulting from the various types of contaminations that inherently come to mind. With Fukushima, there were really no such cases. Following the disaster, the United Nations commissioned an independent report on the accident. The report was to be conducted by the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation. Now, UNSCEAR was founded in 1955 with the goal of undertaking reviews of the sources of ionizing radiation and the effects on human health and the environment. In 2013, this committee actually published the report titled Levels and Effects of Radiation Exposure Due to the Nuclear Accident After the 2011 Great East Japan Earthquake and Tsunami. Now, I should point out that this report has subsequently been revised and re-released in 2021, and the findings have been substantiated. Now, their report focuses on the measurements of radiation and radioactivity, the release and dispersion of radioactive material, especially iodine-131, cesium-134, and cesium-137. Also, the exposure of the general public to radiation, the exposure of workers at the plant to radiation, and the exposure of plants and animals to the released radiation. Now, radiation is a form of energy transmitted through the air. Some types of radiation can actually penetrate materials, and they cause a process called ionization. Now, this ionizing radiation can damage the chemical structure of biological material, like the cells that make up human organs and tissue. And it can also affect DNA, which in turn can lead to cancer or hereditary conditions. Now, the UNSCEAR committee arrived at a good working understanding of the magnitude, composition, and timing of radioactive releases into the air and sea around the nuclear power plant. Based on that understanding, the committee turned its attention to the public in affected and adjacent areas. So the conclusion of the study was as follows, quote, the committee found no credible evidence of excess birth defects, stillbirths, premature births, or low birth weights related to radiation exposure. Increases in the incidence of cardiovascular and metabolic conditions have been observed among those evacuated 
following the accident, but are probably associated with social and lifestyle changes and are not attributed to radiation exposure. The committee also concluded that detectable increases of thyroid and other types of cancer that are sensitive to radiation, such as leukemia or breast cancer, were likely because of the generally low levels of radiation exposure in the Fukushima prefecture population. Now, the committee also found that 10 years on, the levels of radiation exposure for the accident in all but the most highly contaminated areas have reduced to levels that are below the radiation exposure from natural backgrounds. Excess psychological distress occurred in the aftermath of the combined earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear power station accident. However, the report does not address other health consequences, such as mental health or financial impacts, which are beyond the committee's mandate. Now, as addressed in this committee report, there are many types of fallout to a nuclear disaster. For the people of the Fukushima prefecture, as we mentioned at the top of this episode, Time stopped at 2.46 p.m. on March 11, 2011. And this is because life as they knew it changed in the blink of an eye. And residents were caught unaware, mid-activity, their lives upended or taken by the seismic shock of the quake or the ravaging waves that struck shortly after. For those who survived the initial mega-shock of the earthquake, the haphazard wall of waves of the resulting tsunami and the radioactive discharge into the atmosphere, there was another tragedy to overcome, which was that displacement. The Japanese government, in tandem with the nuclear industry, made a lot of grave errors that, if remedied earlier, could have prevented the Fukushima nuclear disaster. It should be said that the evacuation and sheltering helped as there were no casualties due to the failed reactors. However, the evacuation itself had negative effects on the people in the vicinity of the plant. In many ways, much like the aftershocks that reverberate after the initial earthquake, the effects of the evacuation are still being felt to this day. As the UNSCEAR reports, the psychological effects of displacement could really not be overlooked. In terms of psychological effects of evacuation, the survivors of the Fukushima nuclear disaster battled a mental health crisis of an epic proportion. The lingering chaos of the disaster is one of the many specters of Fukushima. Five years after the disaster, the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health published a study on the effects of the disaster. The study found that two-thirds of the residents who lived in the evacuation zone had moved more than three times since the disaster, and this suggested that they were just unable to settle in stable locations. Turns out nearly 40% of families had been separated due to the relocation. 
And it stated that survivors also feel a deep lack of trust, which gnaws at their sense of well-being. Frankly, these survivors do not trust the government, as they are well aware that the government has no plans to curtail its use of nuclear energy. There's also a lack of transparency on behalf of the government that leads people to think about the worst-case scenario. As one might expect, there is this pervading sense that the next disaster is right around the corner, and this just adds to a climate of fear and frayed nerves. And the study that I've been referring back to actually states that this climate of uncertainty, stress, and mistrust bleeds into personal relationships, citing various levels of discordance among survivors and their kin. Now, certain conditions actually ripen under the banner of instability and mistrust, namely PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder. And this can come in the form of depression and self-destructive behaviors such as alcohol abuse. There actually was a noted spike in persons who died by suicide in the years following the disaster among people from affected regions in Japan. And these rates were actually 110 to 130 deaths for every 100,000 people versus the national average, which is below 20 deaths per 100,000 people. A 2018 study examined the uniqueness of the Fukushima disaster and zeroed in on some key points that perhaps exacerbated the mental struggles for the survivors. And those key points were that there was unclear relief processes, there was invisible effects, there was uncertainty regarding information, there was distrust towards authority, and ambiguous losses. At a minimum, survivors experienced some anxiety, which catalyzed a slew of mental health struggles. The uniqueness of this Fukushima disaster lies in the fact that it's not a natural disaster. It is a man-made nuclear disaster, which carries with it some psychosocial implications. Some of the psychosocial implications were stigma and discrimination associated with being an evacuee of Fukushima. For example, people would claim you're contaminated with radiation just because someone was evacuated from the area. Also, caregivers' anxiety and its effect on their children, community fragmentation and self-stigma among evacuees, Whereas a natural disaster often breeds community and resilience, nuclear disasters tend to create dissident in the form of family members having different opinions on the physical risks caused by radiation exposure, interfamilial conflicts caused by differences in residential restrictions or compensation, frustration between evacuees and neighboring areas, where the large number of evacuees are being taken into. To a certain extent, some of the population may see it as an invasion where a large number of these evacuations are coming into their area taking their resources. 
Now, some of the examples of the differences between the effects of natural versus nuclear disaster include impact of trauma, which would be natural disaster is acute and instant, and a nuclear disaster would be more chronic and continuous. Now, some of the examples of the difference between the effects of natural versus nuclear disaster include the affected areas, which nuclear disaster, other than the plant itself, would be invisible and an unclear area of devastation, while a natural disaster is visible and is pretty clear to see where the affected areas are. Now, the last effect would be natural disasters having less groundless rumors because they're not associated with any one group or the fault of anyone in particular, they're natural by nature. Whereas nuclear disaster has more instances of groundless rumors because there is a group, a person, a system that can be specifically targeted or blamed for the disaster. Although in this case, it's a little bit different. You can't necessarily separate it out into the natural disaster and nuclear disaster. Um, it is, as I've alluded to in this episode, a little bit of both. Because, yes, there was a nuclear disaster, but it was set into motion via natural disaster. So these are interesting points of discussion and they do serve to highlight, once again, the complexities and uniqueness of this disaster. At the end of the day, the fallout of the Fukushima nuclear disaster was mitigated by the swift evacuation of the residents of the affected area, but it was severe in its intensity nonetheless. The fact that it was avoidable is searing in its injustice as it is always the little guy who pays the price for the hubris of industry. Now, of course, we can't just completely blame the industry because, like I've said, this disaster is unique in its complexity. It can be said that the aftershocks of the Fukushima event reverberated through the lives of affected residents like ripples in time. It's quite telling that many residents of Fukushima actually speak of seeing ghosts lingering in the region. Collectively, the residents of the Fukushima prefecture suffered a very complex tragedy. It is worth wondering if the invisible threat of radiation morphed into something that collectively was easier to understand. Since many people lost their lives so quickly and senselessly, perhaps their energy also lingers in Fukushima. Unsurprisingly, the Fukushima accident has reignited the ever-contentious debate about the safety of nuclear energy. Critics argue nuclear power is too dangerous to be acceptable. In assessing how safe nuclear can be, it is useful to ask whether an accident was preventable. The two major nuclear accidents prior to Fukushima 
were Chernobyl in 1986 and Three Mile Island in 1979, and both were preventable. According to polls between April and June of 2011, support for nuclear energy went from 50% down to 40%. Support for the decrease of nuclear energy went up to 40% from 30%, and support for complete abolishment stayed steady at about 15%. A year later, in March of 2012, support maintaining or increasing nuclear energy production dropped to 22%, and support for a decrease increased to 53%, and 20% wanted to abolish it completely. Now, several years later, in February of 2015, respondents were asked if they would use nuclear energy if the cost was the same or less than it would be otherwise. And at this point in time, 67% said yes, and 32% said no. Before we go, I would like to once again thank everyone for listening and remind you that you can reach out with questions, comments, concerns, and also I would love to have suggestions for topics. You know, this podcast covers natural disasters, natural events, they don't have to be disasters. They can be pollution events. It can be types of pollution. It can be anything related to climate change, anything related to the environment. It can be, you know, like the nitrogen cycle. If you want to get in-depth on more scientific cycles or things going on in the world, I am totally open to your suggestions. Go ahead and send those over to the podcast's email, which is thechronicfailurepodcast at gmail.com, or go ahead and DM me over on Instagram at thechronicfailurepodcast. Remember, I put up pictures related to our episodes over there. Go ahead and check them out. Please give us a follow. I would greatly appreciate that as well. And if you have a few seconds, I would greatly appreciate any ratings or reviews on whatever streaming platform that you're on. That would really help me out. Um, I am hoping to continue to grow this podcast. Like I said in the beginning, it's going pretty well so far in the couple weeks that we've been out. I would also like to thank Chloe Kibbe for the research and writing on today's episode. Next week's episode will be on the Grassy Narrows First Nation. And in that episode, we will be talking about how life for the people of the Grassy Narrows First Nation was left in tatters following the discharge of almost one ton of mercury into the waters that make up their ancestral territory. What followed would end up being a fight for justice that persists to this day. It's going to be a good episode. I hope you'll join us next week. As always, thanks for listening.